Welcome to the Insightful Nurse Leader. This is a podcast by nurse leaders for nurse leaders. This show is focused on assisting leaders become effective managers and change facilitators. I'm your host, Miles Perilla. Join me every week as I speak with fellow nurse leaders, share insights, lessons learned, and practical advice. So, whether you're a seasoned frontline leader, a budding charge nurse, an experienced manager, or executive, you don't want to miss this. All right. Hi, everyone. This is Miles, your host for the Insightful Nurse Leader. Our guest for today for episode two is Holly Nelson. Holly is the ED manager of Evergreen Hospital. She is leading the front line uh, when COVID hit here in Kirkland, Washington. Kirkland was the epicenter of the first community outbreak here in the U.S. Holly is a good friend, a great colleague, and we also worked together back when we were staff nurses back in the day. Holly, how did you become a nurse leader? Hi, Miles. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, really excited to talk about all this. Um, two things I'm very passionate about is leadership and uh, healthcare. And so thanks for having me on to, to explore this. I became a nurse leader. Um, I actually started as a volunteer at Evergreen when I was 15 years old. Got the bug for helping people and helping my community and started to go to school for nursing school. And during that time, I was a tech in the emergency department and really was exploring all different types of nursing care. And that's when I realized emergency medicine. I loved the variety. I loved the changes, the ever-changing atmosphere and and uh, wanted to continue to pursue that. So I started my career in 2009 as an emergency department nurse and worked uh, Three, three different hospitals in the emergency department and eventually found my way back to Evergreen. And then after working as a bedside nurse, started to pursue leadership and took my first job in a pulmonary clinic as a supervisor and gradually uh, moved into the emergency department manager role and have been doing that for the last five years. Amazing. You know, it's funny how, at least in my career, I always find nurses or staff, whether tech or nurse, who started in the ED, who go away and then always find their way back in the ED. It's so true. It's a bug that I I swear something's wrong with us, but we we do love that. Uh, There's a certain amount of teamwork and and passion and, and craziness, controlled chaos, and what we like to call it, that attracts us back to it. We keep coming back. Yeah, totally agree. Thanks for sharing that. So how did you and your team prep for getting your first COVID patient back in early 2020? Gosh, well, I would say we definitely didn't anticipate this kind of the gravity of the situation. We had known about COVID. We had uh, articles being sent our way of COVID's out there and there's this new bug. We had had a few emails to our staff about, hey, be diligent in triage when you're asking questions of patients about where they traveled and make sure that they don't have any of the symptoms of you know, fever uh, on top of traveling and, and mm-hmm. cough and flu symptoms. So, so we had had that knowledge. I'd say as far as prepping the entire team, we we have done things in the past for emergency preparedness. So uh, our 
trauma coordinator. Uh, her name's Barb J Jensen, used to work in emergency preparedness and really helped develop our team on, on that skill set and level. We had lots of team members starting to be sent to Aniston, uh, where we do the FEMA training and uh, organization of, of how to how to implement command centers and uh, how to navigate through disasters. So we had some knowledge of, of how to do this, not particularly with COVID specifically, but of how best to navigate those situations. And I had just had some training, I think a couple of days before COVID about, uh, I think viral diseases in, in the state of Washington. I think measles was a big thing at that, that time of, of a, a new outbreak that was happening. And so we were preparing for something like that. And yeah, and then I'd say as prepared as we could be, uh, that's what it hit. And, and I think what I'd say prepared us the most for it was just having that yeah. adaptability, that, yeah. that background training. Yeah. Cause. Right. Right. And then that level of uncertainty yeah. was. Oh was yeah. yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. and I, I think that's honestly, I, I think during my training, during the time when I went down to Aniston and got that training, I remember thinking, well, this isn't going to apply to us. I mean, uh, Seattle is a totally different thing where we don't have hurricanes, tornadoes. We were training for, you know, huge, huge disasters. And I was like, ah, that's just, that's not the case. But I didn't realize until I was in those situations in the first few weeks of COVID, how much that training kicked in because I, I started wow. realizing all the, the nuances of how to communicate, how to get information to the front lines, how to communicate from the front lines to upper administration and to, uh, national entities, mm -hmm. even the CDC, uh, getting that information out quickly and, and making adjustments on the fly. I um, was very thankful for those opportunities I had to, and for some of our staff to have that too. It really did show. Awesome. How did this impact the ED team? Oh, uh, dramatically, <laughs> I'd say. Uh, a, you know, a small, small way to say it, but it's changed our practice uh, how we do things today and uh, just two years into it we i would say it's one of the one of the proudest moments i've had as a leader was seeing how the team came together and how they adapted to those changes that were rapidly happening um, it made us stronger as a team and it was one of those things that i think you couldn't explain you couldn't try to uh, share with other other family members, friends, it was really the people that were on the ground that were running it, that understood what exactly you were seeing, what you were going through. And so the team really came together and I was so impressed with them. I remember the first day finding out about two patients that had tested positive. One of them had expired and I had to come in and share with the staff that had been possibly exposed. And at the time we didn't know what that meant. And so I was calling and it was uh, basically half our night shift crew, our entire Redmond department, uh, emergency staff all had to be quarantined. And I was calling each one of them. And wow. I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I'm not going to, this is an awful, awful disease. I'm not going to be able to get anybody to come into work. They're going to all be scared. I'm not sure how to navigate this. And to my surprise, even day one, I started getting calls because we were all over the news um, from my staff mm -hmm. and saying, how can I help? How can, how can I get in? And what do you need? Mm -hmm. And so 
I was, it was one of those moments I was so proud. The team uh, stood together alongside each other and came in and uh, it was one of those things, like I said, it just drew our team closer together and uh, we were all united on the front of, we understand the risks, we understand the sacrifices we're making to come in and was so proud of the team that was willing to come in and, and fight that battle. So you mentioned changes. So earlier, there was quite a bit of ambiguity surrounding the logistics part, like mm-hmm. you know, isolation precaution, the availability of masks, the supply yeah. chain issues, the respirators. Can you tell us more about how did you navigate all this? Yeah, so uh, when it first first came out, we, we tried rapidly to get PPE, uh, personal protective equipment for all all the um, staff that were on the front line. So cappers, pappers, and and getting them fit tested, which is how you find out about the N95 size and making sure that the masks fit appropriately. And we asked all around, all local entities, and said, please help us. We're getting inundated right now. And have, we couldn't get any. We couldn't get anybody to, to send us anything. And Mm-hmm. It was, and rightly so, they were worried about what was going to hit their way. And so they didn't want to give up what little supplies they had. And so we we put out mass calls, efforts um, to basically the entire state, the nation, asking for, please help us get masks, get get this equipment. We, I, I remember the, the first day it hit, I, I just thought, okay, I need to get everybody fit tested. I mean, we, we had done some fit testing for TB precautions and and uh, and so we had some masks, we had some uh, some backup equipment, but we just hadn't had fit testing. And so I asked our uh, employee health to please come down to my office, and mm-hmm. I just started rapidly getting staff in to get them fit tested. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I remember thinking, you know, um, however we can get this going faster and getting them the equipment they need. That, that's what I'm going to try to do. I never actually got fit tested. I, I look back at it and because uh, I remember thinking I would try to have the people that are on the front lines doing it than have a manager get fit tested. And <laughs> I remember my parents at the time were like, get fit tested. <laughs> like you need to get those masks. And yeah, and I just remember thinking, no, the team needs it more, more than I do. Yeah. And, and so then we started uh, figuring out how to reuse the equipment, reusing masks, right? <laughs> reusing uh, paper hoods and and we actually had the functionality to move a lot of the rooms to negative airflow. We had a, a barrier. It was designed in our emergency department years ago before we even opened that you could shut down half of the uh, department and make it all negative airflow. And mm-hmm. so we made the decision, I think day two or three of, of COVID that we were seeing enough patients, we got to do this and rapidly move. And so we shut that down and, and, uh, uh, we found out that that was a great call at the time because it helped turn over rooms faster. We were able to isolate COVID patients with respiratory symptoms. And uh, it actually provided a little bit of, I, I remember when that wall came up, that it almost provided mm-hmm. a sense of, okay, we can control this. Like it, it was, um, it was almost like a a visual of uh, we got this team like before it was uh, patients were spread all all about the emergency department and mm-hmm. uh, room next to you know uh, healthy individuals with a medical emergency not necessarily COVID related and so once we were able to make that 
kind of barrier call and have all those patients on one side, I think it made people a lot more confident in mm -hmm. uh, how to control the chaos there. So, so if yeah. I, I mean, one of the learnings, if I had to do it over again, I would have done it day one, but yeah, <laughs> took us, took us a few days to figure that one out. Did you have to continue that all throughout or are you still doing that now? We, we are actually able to convert all that side to negative without putting a, a wall up. And so, nice. um, and the wall is really just like a curtain that uh, a steel curtain that controls the airflow in that area. So now we were able to convert each individual room rather than having the whole side of the department be negative airflow. So it's a lot easier to move around and <laughs> walk in between. So yeah, we still have that. Yeah, that's definitely challenging uh, when you know staff nurses are taking care of a patient in isolation. They have to go through a different room and you know the, the removing of PPE is, is definitely time consuming and it really impacts your responsiveness. Did you have designated staff for the COVID area or? No, we, we I remember talking about that at one point and we really just kind of rotated people through and um, and thankfully I didn't have anybody that was no I will absolutely not do that. I, I was surprised I actually had more people asking put me on the COVID side. I. You know, um, I, I feel more able and capable of doing that and comfortable. I feel like I've got the right PPE. I'd rather have the same um, same people going in and out. And I mean, staff wanted to protect some of our pregnant nurses, some of our um, more experienced nurses, I think is what I'm saying, but people that were immunocompromised, things like that. So I actually had more volunteers, like I said, wanting to go into those rooms than not. And another one of those times where I was really proud as a manager, as a leader, to see staff sticking up for each other and doing what they felt called to do. That's amazing. What were, you, you mentioned a lot of things that were a challenge. What was the biggest challenge for your team during the earlier months? Oh, well, uh, I always describe this as kind of like a, a battle scene. So uh, on the uh, battlefield and preparing for war, uh, we had tools in our, our pocket. We had had some training and we were, we were hitting the ground running and I felt like our team was just almost thriving. Um, they stepped up for the challenge. They were doing everything they could to, to get into work. All the people that had to quarantine were calling me, threatening me saying, I need to get back there. I need to get back and help my team. <laughs> and so, so it was, it was pretty, pretty amazing. And then, um, I think when we were, when it got real, um, was when we had staff starting to fall sick. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think that's when it changed and became one of the biggest challenges during that time was, yeah, I mean, just like preparing for war, you, you train, you train, you're ready, and you, you hit it, you're excited, this is what you prep for, this is what you train for. And it's not until you see a fallen comrade or somebody next to you, a colleague, uh, that it becomes very real and it it changes the whole excitement and fun about it it becomes okay we need to get serious this is and it changed the whole tone and I want to say that was week one or two of when we had the initial COVID uh, patients and we had a provider and a couple nurses get really sick mm -hmm. and ended up getting admitted to the hospital and we had a provider that was intubated and at the time, anybody that had COVID that was intubated didn't come out alive. Um, mm -hmm. And so we, we really struggled with that. 
as a team one with how do we tell the team once it, we knew that happened because we wanted we wanted everybody to know we wanted everybody to start taking this seriously and and we knew it would change the whole tone of the department and i remember we had a meeting with our leadership uh, group and we talked about is this the right call do we tell them do we tell them as a team um and we all decided yes we need we need to so we called a, a quick staff huddle had everybody come over and everybody was still excited. I mean, there was still like a, gosh, people are overreacting. This, there was still a mindset of, you know, this isn't that big a deal. We got this and kind of fun, um, happy-go-lucky feeling about it. And then I remember when we announced that, that the provider's upstairs, he's intubated, and it's not looking good, um, mm-hmm. that it just sucked the air out of the department, so to speak. Uh, everyone's faces, you could just see it change in a tone of, uh, okay. I mean, everyone started reevaluating what they're, what they're here for. Is this really, uh, you know, is the sacrifices that I'm making really worth it to help my community knowing that I'm at risk. And I, I think that was honestly the biggest hurdle that our team had to face was in the initial first two weeks. Mm-hmm. Wow. What made you and the team decide to share this, knowing that this would have a some sort of a negative impact with the team's morale. I think it ultimately came down to I felt like it was the the right thing. I I was walking around the department that morning. I remember I was one of the only ones that knew about what happened, and uh, and seeing everybody, you know, just kind of making jokes and um, and you know, just like I said, having that, um, the idea of, oh, it's not that big a deal. And I just knew we've got to tell them, we've we've got to tell them that this is a big deal, that uh, they need to be paying attention. They need to take everything seriously of how they're, they're putting on their protective equipment, have somebody double, triple check them. And, and I, I think for me, uh, it was a no brainer to let the team know. And, and I, I remember we talked with the provider's family member. And they said that too, that our team would want to know that he would want them to know what was, what was happening for their own safety and protection. And so I think that along with our leadership group decided, yes, this is the best call. We had a couple that were, you know, hesitant to do so because they knew it would change morale um, mm-hmm. and, and practice. But uh, I uh, wholeheartedly believe that was the right call at the time to tell all the staff what was happening. So fast forward a few months, I know when I was the manager of Overlake in the ED, we started seeing trickles of staff resigning, um, other staff moving to a different state or others even changing their specialty, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and some went to travel because there were a lot of, um, there's a huge actually pay difference being a travel nurse nowadays. Absolutely. So how did that impact your staffing? I should I even ask that? <laughs> yeah, no. Um, you know, it's funny. I think at the time, uh, I, again, was very surprised that it didn't have the impact that I thought it was going to, that we'd have a mass exodus right away. Uh-huh. And I had, I think, two two techs, <clears throat> two unit department techs that did resign. And they, they told me it was because of the provider uh, that got sick. And it really scared them because yeah. they... Uh, and these were texts that didn't have to work. Um, and it was basically their family telling them, 
I don't want you there. <laughs> I don't, I don't want you on the front lines. And they were immunocompromised and um, really, uh, they, and they felt awful. I remember they called me just in tears saying, I've, I'm so sorry. I feel like I'm letting the team down. And it, it was, um, I mean, I think I even cried too at the time <laughs> being like, I, I totally understand it. And, it, and like I said, I, I understood why people would leave and I didn't try to hold them to it. I, I just basically said, I understand. And as a leader, I think that's all you can really do is, um, I mean, you're not going to, it doesn't help to get mad at them or mm -hmm. force them to come back. And I think also uh, at the time we had a couple nurses that were looking at that travel, <coughs> travel position, but it wasn't more, it wasn't for just for the sake of traveling and getting experience as a nurse. It was uh, a couple of our nurses wanted to go on the front lines where they felt it was most needed. And so I had a couple of nurses asked to go to New York at the time. And this was after our initial wave hit at Evergreen and our volumes had come way down and we were basically seeing half the amount of volumes and trying to low census every day with staffing. And, and so uh, I remember this nurse coming to ask me, is it okay if I go to New York, I really feel called to, to be out there right now. They're, they're needing experienced nurses. And I, I just remember looking at her and I said, you really, do you know what you're getting into? Cause again, at that time it was a death sentence. They didn't have PPE over there. They had uh, horrible disaster trains. I think they had morgues on the streets. I mean, just horrible, horrible cases. And, and she said, yes, I, I absolutely do. And I said, okay, I, I, I encourage you. I, I love that you're feeling called to do this and I want to support you every way I can. And at the time we were able to do that because like I said, we were low sensing half our staff and it just made sense. And so I let her go and I, I loved hearing her. She stayed in contact with me the whole time she was in New York of the experiences she was having. And uh, I just, it was really eye opening. And what she told me is that majority of the nurses that were out there that were the travel nurses that were helping on the front lines, their managers either had to let them go terminate their employment because they couldn't keep them on or um, they were basically uh, they had to quit in order to go help on the front lines. And and so I, I remember thinking back, I was like, that that's such a shame that. Uh, that they had to do that. I understand why other employers had to do that uh, to send their nurses out there and at a time when we needed staffing more than ever. But mm -hmm. ultimately, I think that was a decision that ended up being a reward because that nurse came back so much more thankful that her employer would let her go do something like this. And she had invaluable experience that she shared with the rest of the team, uh, walking in between gurneys of six to seven patients in the ED and doing... Uh, I mean, ICU level care, holding these patients down there, uh, just the, uh, I, I mean, she just has stories that I, I just, you wouldn't believe unless you saw it yourself. So yeah, mm -hmm. uh, I think that was another, another thing that I think helped really helped our staff understand that, you know, we're supportive of each other and that we all want to honor everyone that feels called to do what they want to do. And and hard hard calls as leaders too is knowing how much to control and how much to push and how much to let go and i think that mm -hmm. that ultimately helped us in the long run with keeping our staff on 
However, now things are a little different <laughs> year two yeah. of COVID. Yeah. And, uh, but initially, yeah, we didn't, we really didn't lose much staff and, and actually had for the last two years really kept a high retention rate at Evergreen. And I think that was because of the teamwork and camaraderie of the staff getting through this once our, I mean, once our provider that got super sick came back and our nurses returned that were in the hospital and just giving each other hugs, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, it really made our team stronger together. Um, but yeah, now what we're seeing is a different kind of burnout and uh, struggle and year two of it. So I'd say now is harder than it ever was during COVID to retain staff. Can you talk more about that different type of burnout that you mentioned? Yeah. So I, I would say right now we're in probably the fifth or sixth wave of COVID. I don't know what we're what wave it is, but uh, <laughs> but I'd say we're seeing a shift from one the community outreach, the support that we were getting. I mean, uh, from locals of bringing us uh, big banners and food and saying thank you, thank you healthcare heroes and and thank you for all that you do. And then going from that to almost a churn of, uh, I think with the changes of the vaccine mandate, making everything political with masks, um, mm-hmm. uh, kind of dividing the parties of, of, of science. Um, I mean, people went into healthcare to do the right thing and help their community and help help each other. And now it's just become so divisive and it's very sad to see. It's a different enemy. Uh, I think what really united us at the beginning was all having that common enemy. We have this disease. We, at the time, didn't know how to protect ourselves, how to protect our staff, uh, how to protect the patients and how to treat it. We, we just had no um, no knowledge, but we were all united that we understand the risks and we're all here and I'm going to stand alongside you. And so it was a really proud moment to see, but now we've transitioned into, wait, you don't believe this and I do. And how can we be working alongside each other if we have all seen the same thing? And I think with the community dividing us, our own staff turning against each other, it's a, a much worse enemy than I ever had at the beginning of COVID where we had a united enemy. Now it's, a really divided team, unfortunately. And so, so we're seeing a little bit of that. Um, I think that's a challenge leaders are facing right now too on the front lines is how do you get back to having a common goal, having that unity of we're here to treat the patients, you know, put your personal bias aside and, um, you know, still do the right thing. And people are really struggling with that, especially after seeing COVID for as long as they have. Um, they they don't want to go through this again on top of having that divide and Mm -hmm. and so i think that really is the struggle now that we're seeing is how do we keep people engaged and keep people um, optimistic and especially knowing that there really isn't an end in sight um healthcare has changed forever and i think people thought too the vaccine was going to provide some kind of end you know some kind of relief and so there was a moment there a year ago when it first came out that oh we, you know, we finally have some, some treatment available, but it uh, didn't turn out that way. We're still seeing higher numbers of COVID than we have before. And we're on track to see 
twice as or we're on track to see more this year than we did last year of COVID patients. It's it's just a very uh, very hard time for all healthcare professionals right now. Mm-hmm. You know, from a from the operations side of things, I mean, every hospital, healthcare, or, or actually any industry right now is experiencing staffing crisis. Mm-hmm. And you're right; it's 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 much more challenging now because of the um, different perspective and, and belief systems and value systems of different individuals who are working in the front line that's that's causing a divide. What have you tried or strategies that you have done to help build the team, that camaraderie, or even, you know, getting over the differences? Yeah. No, it's it's definitely a very challenging time. I think COVID throws a wrench in a lot of that. Uh, a lot of team building, I mean, as much as you can do online meetings and things like that, it's, it's great. I love that we've advanced technology in this last couple of years because of COVID and, and being able to do more with that there. It doesn't replace sometimes just the, the sitting down, um, the one-to-ones, the, um, the team, uh, events. We, we had to cancel all team get togethers, parties, things like that because of COVID. And, and so I, that, that challenge is very real. What we've done is uh, we, we've tried to implement a basically a, a couple committees. One's a Code Lavender and a Schwartz Rounding and, mm-hmm. um, and then a High Five Committee in our department. Mm-hmm. So Schwartz Rounding is, I think, one of the, been one of the most impactful for our staff. Uh, we have a, a few staff members that that joined it. And it's basically, I, I don't know if they had it at your hospital, but it's basically a way to uh, do, yeah. do rounding with the staff and, and check in on how they are doing um, physically, emotionally, and, and letting them share their stories with the rest of the hospital. And I, I think it's been one of the most rewarding and healing things that we've been able to do since COVID hit is hearing the stories of the, the workers, the people, the sacrifices they made, um, things they had to do uh, to change their family lives, their, um, their lives at, at work. Um, we had a couple of the nurses that got sick initially share their stories and it was very emotional, but it also brought a lot of healing to all the staff to hear that, Hey, we we're here for you. We're not alone. And so I think that that coupled with a lot of, um, team members being vulnerable and, and being able to talk through some of that has helped a lot. As far as the divide amongst staff with the mandate, we're, we're still in the thick of that right now with uh, the vaccine mandate. And I, I think it's causing a lot of divide on both ends, the extremes on both sides, because we actually have a large number of staff that aren't vaccinated. And I, I couple that with a few things. I, I think our staff, uh, the ones that don't want to get it, they, they've been on the front lines the last two years and seen the worst of the worst and and have taken precautions that they need to to protect themselves and their family. And uh, I almost equate it to, again, uh, people on the battlefield that come home after seeing awful, awful things, horrible things. And they get back from war and they come home and they're just like, I'm invincible. You know, <laughs> like I, I made it through this horrible stuff. I don't need to wear a seatbelt. I'm going to go buy a motorcycle. And you see a lot of these young kids that get horrible accidents right after they got back from war because of this kind of feeling. And I, I feel along those lines that we have a lot of staff with that same mindset of, you know, 
uh, I'm invincible. I don't need it. And uh, I'm doing what I need to do to protect my family. And so I, I support them on, on what their decision is that they've made and as much as I can. Um, and at the same time, you know, I, I do personally believe in the vaccine and think that it has helped a lot with the deaths. Um, people that, I mean, we see the statistics that people die uh, more often when they don't have a vaccine than when they do. And so that's why I want to encourage staff to still get it. Uh, to protect themselves and one so that I can have staff <laughs> not not have as many get sick um, but yeah so along those lines I understand their extreme side on that and then I understand the extreme side on the other end of you know I, I don't want to work alongside these people that don't believe in the vaccine I mean they've seen the worst of the worst why can't they why can't they get the vaccine and, and protect me and protect themselves um, they feel almost that it's a slap in the face of have you not acknowledged, have you not seen what we've seen the last two years, uh, the sick of the sick. And, and so I, I get, I, I get both extremes. And I think every staff meeting that I've had, I've tried to uh, give the opportunity for, for staff to voice their concerns and do it in a way that is supportive of the individual of, of still, I mean, I do think it's our duty as nurses and as healthcare workers to educate, to, um, I, I mean, same when you get a patient in that's an alcoholic or a drug abuser, it, it's still our duty to tell them what they believe is the best thing for them and to educate on why not mm -hmm. to do these things. Um, but at the end of the day, there's only so much you can do and, mm -hmm. and you're still going to treat them and you're still going to give them the same compassion. And so that's what I've been asking our staff to do with each other during this time is still honor each other's views, mm -hmm. uh, listen, but I still support you to have those conversations. I, I, I don't believe in no talk whatsoever, especially about healthcare and um, about science. And that, that's what we're called to do. And, and so having those conversations though, with the mindset of keeping the individual's best interest at heart, that you're doing these, these conversations with um, compassion for the other and what you truly feel. So, so we're in the middle of that. Um, I'll let you know how that goes after <laughs> the next couple of weeks, but it, yeah. it has definitely been a challenge here. Well, I'm sure your staff respects you a lot because of, of that. Thank you. How do you balance, now switching over to you, how do you balance work and personal life? <laughs> Being a mom, you know, having a family mm -hmm. and having a very demanding job. It's, it is definitely a challenge. And by no means do I have a perfect answer for that. And I think it's a, a an issue that all leaders will come across. And uh, I do know that uh, staff respect you and and the more you make decisions to honor yourself, your family, and take that time to make sure you're in a good place, staff will follow you a lot more than if you're constantly putting work first or constantly putting family first. Um, uh, but I do believe that in my, my personal life, what I've chosen, I have faith first, I have family second, and then work third. And so I think during this year, it, um, one of the things that really 
did well for me was I, I felt rewarded at being at work. Um, I really got a sense of pride and value. I felt that I was called to be where I was supposed to be at the right time. And I never felt so, uh, so I, I guess just that feeling of knowing I am in the right place and uh, called to do something as I did during that time, during the pandemic and during this time uh, current today. And uh, it became very challenging, I, I think, during during this last couple of years of how to how to manage that, putting family first, putting faith. And I, I think that my faith got me through a lot of the difficult decisions that I had to make this year, a lot of the difficult staffing issues and conversations I had to have. But uh, when it came to balancing family, I, I, what I tried to do was um, tried to leave as much as I could at the door when I got home. And it, during the thick of it, it was very apparent. I would strip down in the garage and and that was almost a symbolic meaning of I'm going to leave it here. I've got to come in and, and be there for my family who I know have been at home all day um, and dealing with different battles. And my poor husband, who's a teacher, was home all year too. And I honestly think he had the harder job out of the two of us. Um, but it was also, I think, a challenge is, uh, again, that I keep going back to battle of wartime. I think it's the military in my family that when they're when they're on the front lines, they're there the whole time and they can really separate um, being at home and, and being at war. What we dealt with the challenge was going to battle and then coming home at the end of the night. It's, it's such a different, different war of having that harder time of separating because when you're at war across in a different country, Iraq, um, you're, you're there, you're in it and there's no, no leaving that. And then when you come home, you can really detach. You can uh, have that separation. Whereas in healthcare, you don't. Um, you carry it with you all the time. And and I think staff and, and I had the same concerns of how do I keep it? How do I not spread it to my family? How do I take the proper precautions to not let them see how how stressed I am, especially as a leader, hearing all the stories and, um, and knowing the decisions I'm making on a daily basis. I wanted to let reassure my staff and my family uh, that everything was okay <laughs> mm-hmm. because uh, you know staff are going to look at you and my family's going to look at you as uh, any sign any sign of that I'm stressed that things aren't okay and right and so I think I saved the worst for my family I think I kept it together pretty well at work I, I remember the first day coming when I had to tell the staff about our provider that got sick, I, I kept it together at work. I remember texting my family. I said uh, to my husband and my father, I was like, you know, for the first time, I'm scared. I can't protect my staff. I can't protect the team. I can't I can't fight this thing. And, and I'm losing staff and uh, might have one that, that dies. And we actually did have a nurse that died. It wasn't my staff member, but it was an ICU nurse. And and that, that became very hard. Um, but I think, uh, like I said, I, I kept it together at work. But when I got home that night, I just collapsed in my husband's arms sobbing because I, I just knew I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. And, and you got to have an outlet. I think you absolutely do have to have some place where you can be vulnerable. And, uh, but as leaders, you really do have to, um, to not ride the storm, if that 
that makes sense. You can't ride the waves. You, you got to be the calm, um, calm presence on the storm and uh, help people get through difficult times. Even, even if you are scared on the inside, uh, I think that's uh, something that your team really needs from you. And, and there are appropriate times to be vulnerable. I think the teams respect that too. And like sharing the story here, I, I think it's valuable for my team to know that, that I have a vulnerable side as well. And, and to share that, but there are certain times and places to do that, and it can help build everybody and and yourself as a leader too, if you're able to manage all that. And like I said, I don't by any means feel like I have it together, but it's a constant <laughs> daily uh, daily mental decision I have to make when I come home of how how and when I show up at work, how I'm going to balance and how I'm going to show uh, my team. But I think showing that you care both sides is a great way to balance and and not stonewall because your team your team's going to know that and see that but very well said Thank yeah you. optimism also is a huge key pack factor of it all too even in, in the midst of the craziness of everything uh, if you can stay optimistic which is another thing i really strive to do but that became very hard this year too what continues to inspire you during this difficult time in nursing? Oh, I think uh, team, without a doubt. I, I, I absolutely am so passionate for this team. It's a great group of individuals. And I, I think along those lines, we're, we're really blessed with a low turnover rate there at the emergency department. And, and it keeps me going. Uh, it keeps me, when I see their faces and their engagement and uh, just how they can continue to show up each day, <laughs> knowing the challenges that they're working through. It's, it's really impressive to see. And it's really uh, feeds my soul too, uh, as a leader to see, see them thriving and seeing them take on new challenges, uh, onboarding new staff. I love, love seeing new residents, things like that, that are excited to come into healthcare. And what a time, I mean, I'm, I'm just impressed people are still coming into healthcare after, after all this. And, and they, they keep me energized. They, they show up and uh, they, they haven't seen anything else. They don't know anything differently. And so right now when we've got our entire department uh, boarding ICU patients up to 20, I think yesterday we had half our department uh, boarded uh, in difficult to see with really sick patients, not just COVID right now. In fact, our COVID numbers are going down, but seeing them thrive and they're just like, yeah, this is all I've ever known. And they take it and, and do great with it. And so that that's the kind of stuff that re rejuvenates me, revives my soul. And then I, I totally agree. Yeah. And same at, same at home. I mean, I, I think seeing my kids get back into school and and doing activities and sports. I, I mean, I, I love going to, to all, all their events and seeing just things come alive and how much they're growing um, socially and gosh, seeing, seeing little improvements here and there of where we're at with society of getting things back reopened. And, you know, it's, it's really, that I think is what keeps me going. That's good. That's good. Coming up to a few uh, last questions here, looking back, can you share any setback and what did you learn from it? Yeah. Oh, gosh, there were quite a few, I think, in it. Um, I think one individual was, 
I think if I if I had to do it over again, I think I would have involved our environmental service teams, our custodians and uh, personnel a lot sooner with a lot of the decisions that we were making up up the line. We did we did a really great job. I felt like of educating our nursing, our our providers, our techs of where we're at. What's what's the new developments with CDC? What's what's the uh, the updates of how we're going to clean this room and what's the turnover rate and we didn't realize um, until once we started getting inundated with all these patients that wait we have evs workers that aren't they're not going into these rooms they're they're refusing to clean um, the patient room we had some that would just uh, they stood outside and were crying because they they thought they were being sent in there to die um and we we really didn't uh, do a great job up front with helping uh, involve them with a lot of the decisions and the education of how they're protected, um, what supplies we have for them. And um, and I think in the, t- the stressfulness of it all, it was basically our teams were like, no, you're fine, go clean it. We need this room. And rather than really sitting down and talk to them. Um, and we, we got to it a, a few weeks late and we were able to get them on board, but I think we did lose a lot of custodians in the, the meantime because we didn't do that up front. Um, and it would have helped uh, immensely with helping our turnover. Uh, we would have had lines out the door um, if we had stayed on top of involving our environmental service team right after that. So I think I think that was one of my biggest learnings and, and uh, uh, ended up being a big setback at the time. Thank you for sharing that. (laughs) Lastly, can you share any practical advice uh, with our fellow nurse leaders navigating similar challenges? Uh, I think the biggest thing is you you don't have to have all the answers. Uh, A lot of people go into leadership and charge nurses and things like that, worried and concerned that they're not going to have all the answers. Um, And I I honestly think that's what makes you... uh, a great leader is if you're willing to be vulnerable in that and come up with solutions and hear and listen to your team. Uh, being being a strong-headed leader that you think you have all the answers and demanding uh, is is one way to get your team to shut down and you're not going to know the true issues or the true problems uh, that are that are going on on your front lines if you if you don't keep up that line of communication and, and uh, compassion for your team. I wish I could give that to all all new leaders and people going into it. You don't have to have the answers. You just have to have the heart and compassion and support of your team. I totally agree. Well, Holly, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure to have you in the show. Uh, how can our listeners connect with you? Oh, I, I would love if anybody did. I'm on LinkedIn and uh, trying to think if I have any other platforms. I think LinkedIn would probably be the best best way. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. To view the complete show notes and all the links mentioned in today's episode, visit milesperillaconsulting.com forward slash podcast. And before you go, make sure you follow or subscribe to this podcast so you can receive the latest episodes as soon as they're released. And if you're enjoying the show, please leave a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. Thank you again for joining me. This is your host, Miles Perilla, and you're listening to The Insightful Nurse Leader. I'll see you next time.